We're continuing looking at the parables. And we're at this week, uh, the parable of what, if you're a certain vintage, you'd call it the wheat and the tares, right? It's the wheat and the weeds parable. It's in Matthew 13. So let me read that to us. We're going to read the parable. And then a few seconds later, Jesus then offers an explanation of the parable. So we're going to jump to verse 36 after. It'll be on the screens. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at, that, at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went to a house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is, in the, is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Who has ears, let him hear. So this parable comes in chapter 13 of Matthew, and it comes at a point where uh, the disciples have asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why do you do this? And he gives a cryptic answer, right? He says, let the, those who hear be here and those who don't see forever be blind and so on. But what he's basically saying, at the risk of summarizing a little too generally, is he's saying parables are kind of like an inside joke. And that if you're going to understand the parable, there's a surface level you can understand, but if you're going to get to the depth of it and understand really what it's saying, you have to know Christ. You have to know his ministry. You have to know his words. And he says as much when he tells the disciples earlier in the chapter, he says, you're my disciples. So to you, it's been given to see these things. So if you don't understand the totality of what Christ is getting at, and this is why it's important that we don't take these parables and pull them out and just study those parables. You need to see them through the lens of the entire teaching of Christ. Otherwise, you're going to run in a direction. Because it seems to say here that Christ is saying, don't do anything with the evil. Let it go. But if you take that parable without everything else where Christ says, no, no, you have to be salt and light, you have to do something, then you're going to think our, our response is to do absolutely nothing. So we have to take this in its proper context. And we look at this parable, we see something I think fascinating. There's a parable that's seven verses long, and the explanation is eight verses long. In the parable, the vast majority, all but one half of a verse, so six and a half verses, are referring to the present time, what it's like to live now when the weeds and the wheat grow up together. Only the last half of the verse of that parable talks about the second coming and what's going to happen. Yet, when Christ is asked to explain himself, of the eight verses, four and a half of the verses talk about the second coming, about the future. 
And so when you see them side by side, what it means is if you're going to take it seriously, if you're not going to leave the table hungry, you have to weigh both. You have to see that the parable is, ask, is, is inviting you to understand what it means to live in the present in light of the future. So the, pre, the future, second coming, has implications on how you live today. So what's what we're going to do? We're going to look at the parable and see what is it telling us about how we are to live. And we're going to see three things. Am I getting typecast as a three-point sermon guy? I feel like it. But three things. It's, it points out our futility, our response, and our hope. And I'll explain those as I go, but it's our futility, our response to that futility, and then our hope. So let's, let's go through that. First, our futility. Now, the Bible is... It's funny when sometimes people will talk about Christians as if we are um, pie-in-the-sky type people, you know, optimists, glass half, half full. And yeah, that's partly true because we've read the end of the book and we know how it ends. But the Bible's quite cynical, or maybe not cynical, maybe let's say realistic about how life is. Specifically, Ecclesiastes, which I always give to skeptics as the first book to read. Not John, not a gospel. I give them Ecclesiastes because it shows them that the Bible takes seriously the brokenness of the world. And right at the outset of Ecclesiastes, it won't be on the screen because I've added this, but here's what we say in chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, what we read. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said? Sorry, flip page. Um, see, this is new. It has already been. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. It's kind of a downer. What he's saying is, life is futile. It's very, uh, he, he, he would be a good French existentialist, right? Life is worthless. Um, there's nothing. Uh, he's saying, you know, life, everything that has been will just disappear. Everything you're building will, will rot. All your memories with your children and your church, it'll be forgotten. You know, forget it. It's just, that's the way it is. And he takes very seriously this idea that we feel like life can be kind of fruitless sometimes. And this is not, it, it's an old idea. And modern experience weighs this out. Modern skeptics, modern Canadians feel the same way. They may not use that language, but it's riddled in all that we do. I was reading, again, this one book uh, recently, um, Heart of Darkness, uh, Joseph Conrad. You may have to read it in school. I don't know. And in it, Joseph uh, Conrad, the, the character in it, is on a boat, a French ship on the Congo, the, the River Congo. And the ship is just shelling the shore, hammering it with artillery over and over again. And here, even though it doesn't look like there's anything there, like it just looks like they're shelling the jungle. And here's what Conrad writes. Pop would go one of the six-inch guns. A small flame would dart and vanish. A little white smoke would disappear. A tiny projectile would give a feeble screech, and nothing happened. Nothing could happen. There was a touch of insanity in the proceeding, a sense of lugubrious drollery in the sight, and it was not dissipated by someone on board assuring me earnestly there was a camp of natives, he called them enemies, hidden out of sight somewhere. And what are you saying? He's, it's a commentary on that moment, but also on life, and he's saying, you know, they're shelling this area. They're convinced they're killing the enemy, but they're not. There's no enemy there. All of their acts are just clanging symbols. There, life is like this. You're all just attacking enemies that aren't there, says Conrad. You're all trying to please a God who's absent. You're all trying to um, grasp happiness that is elusive. You're all just trying to create a just society, but you find it's just out of reach. It never works. Tomorrow, tomorrow, and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to 
to the last syllable of recorded time, Macbeth again. This the way life is. There's a sense of hopelessness that the, that the world can pour into us. And the Bible seems, on one hand, to say it's true. And this parable says it. But the Bible comes stops short of where the world, because the Bible offers a solution to it and why it's there. But the Bible says the reason we can feel this way is because of the fall. It happened at the beginning. In the beginning, we fell, we rebelled, and at that moment, weeds sprung up. And primarily, it was a relational issue, right? At the fall, we broke relationship with at least four things. A relationship broke with God, ourselves, others, and nature. And when that, those relationships fell, weeds immediately sprung up and condemned us to now being weed pullers our whole life. So we're ever seeking God, but it's difficult. We actually are running from Him at the same time, says the Bible. So it's just kind of futile. Sometimes we just don't feel Him when we want Him. We have our relationships with ourselves. We want to know who we are, but we've run away from the one who can tell us. So we're trying to determine who we are by creating our own identity and our gender or in our sexual orientation or in our finances or in our works at church, whatever it is. So we find even knowing ourselves is futile and elusive. With others, we want to have deep relationships with our kids and our spouses and with one another, but we find that ego and greed and stupidity sometimes come in and rob us of what we want. So we never quite get those relationships we want. And with nature, it's probably the most obvious, there are literal weeds that pop up and they resist our cultivation efforts. We want to make the world more productive, more healthy, but we find it doesn't always do it. And when we can do it, we screw it up. And we find that we make it impossible because we rape and pillage the land. So there's a sense of futility that comes right at the fall. And God says, it's going to happen forever until he returns. This is what the parable is saying. It's saying there's going to be this wheat, but there's also going to be weeds, these other people who bring sin into the world, sinners, which many of us in some ways are. And those two are going to be together forever until he returns. And that can seem very hopeless, doesn't it? Because what it's saying, quite literally, this may sound shocking, but what it means is this, it doesn't matter how good your doctrine is at church. It doesn't matter how good the preaching is or how good the anything is, you're not going to get rid of the weeds. There's going to be pain. There's going to be disagreement. There's going to be discord. You're never going to have a perfect church. Your prayer won't even get rid of it. Nothing you can do will get rid of the weeds. That's what he's saying. Until I come back, those weeds will grow with you. And there's a sense of, okay, why is he telling us this? Well, we're going to get to, I think, why he's telling us this. But what, in a nutshell, this is what we need to know this first point. There is futility to an extent in the world. You ever notice at work, you never quite become, um, you know, you have a project in mind. If you're an artist, you have something in mind, but you never quite create it the way you want. It never comes off the way you want. You never, you never look back and say, I raised my kids perfectly. You always think, I didn't quite reach it. And this futility is not just in the world, but God has ordained it. He's allowing it. And we have to wrestle with the fact that God has said, I'm allowing this to happen. I'm letting the weeds grow in, in your midst. It's kind of like life without God essentially is like a merry-go-round. It may change speed. The colors may change. The sound, the music may change. Even the people will change. New people will come on the merry-go-round. But you're just going in circles over and over. There's no progress here. It's like the Fred Flintstone background. Remember when Fred Flintstone used to run in the cartoons? And the same background would keep looping? That's, that's what life is. That's what it seems like on one hand. That's part of what this parable is telling us. 
But that's not all, thankfully. Because then we move now to the response. Well, if that is what life is like, well, what are we supposed to do about it? <laughs> How are we then supposed to interact? Does that mean we do nothing? We just sit and let the weeds come up in the garden? Would you, we wouldn't do that in our own gardens. Is that what he's saying? So the answer, well, in fact, the servants even ask, don't they? They say, can we want us to pull these weeds? And Jesus, the character who is a son of man, the farmer, comes and says, no, don't pull the weeds. Because you actually lack the discernment to distinguish between the good and the bad. So don't do it. That's not your job right now. And that's, well, what is our job then? And the answer to us, I think the answer as to why we're told not to do anything comes, and we had the picture up there, we put it back up of the wheat. Partly, this image of wheat, we, we may lose something because we're not an agrarian people anymore. Well, I'm not anymore. My wife probably knows this, but I don't. Is on, up on the screen, you have wheat and you have darnel. See, the, the Greek word that's used for weeds is the word zizania, which is the, it means the, the, um, the weed called darnel. Now, when they're young, they look very similar. And as a result, he is saying, they look so similar to you. Now remember, if these are the good, the Christians, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of evil, then you actually, he's saying, you don't know the difference. Your eyesight is not good because today's weeds might be tomorrow's wheat. We don't know what's going to happen. So he's saying, so your job is not to pull these because you'll get the wrong ones. Does anybody know which is which up there? I actually forgot. I should have labeled it. I, I'm pretty sure the one on the left is the wheat. Is it? It is? Okay, somebody's saying yes. It's his fault if it's, or it's not true. But it's an important... The reason that is used is because he's saying you, don't, you lack the discernment. I certainly do in an agricultural sense. And think about that in the world. Isn't it sadly true that when we try to shoot at the wolves, we often hit the sheep, that when a church splits because of a doctrinal issue, we get the doctrine right, but we a lot of collateral damage. We hurt the wheat. And I'm not saying we don't stand for something. You're going to see that's quite the opposite of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we have to be very careful because I'll tell you what, the Pharisees were certain they knew what Christ would look like. They were certain their doctrine was right. They were wrong. And so are you and I very often. So it doesn't mean there's no right doctrine. It means let's be humble here. <laughs> let's be calm. Let's not, let's not pull out the wheat and the weeds. Christ died to bring these things together. I'm not going to tear it apart willy-nilly. So there's a warning here, I think, and a rightful one that we should be careful of. Now, but what is the answer? Surely it doesn't say, he's not saying do nothing because Christ throughout his ministry pulled weeds. He's arguing about doctrine. He's... he's turning over tables, he's healing people. He seems to be holding back the tide of sin and decay in the world. So he can't be telling us that. See, that's why if we only read this parable, you'll come away thinking the wrong thing. You have to see the whole of what Christ is saying. I think what he's getting at here is saying, understand that you're never going to get rid of the evil. That's not within your ability or power as a people. You can't cast evil away. That's Christ's job. So you have to get used to the fact that even when you pull one person out of the muck and mire, another one's going to fall in potentially. And you're going to feel like your job is never getting done. As many people come to faith at Redeemer, you're going to have see hundreds of thousands outside who won't. And it's going to feel overwhelming if you go in with the wrong mindset and think, I'm going to make a heaven on earth. You're not. You're not going to make a heaven on earth. 
We can't. It's not within our power. So, what do we do then? The answer, I think, comes to us in verse 30. At the very end, it's very subtle, but I think it's there. In, in verse 30, when, he, when Christ says, let both grow together until the harvest. That word for both or let, it's a very subtle word. I looked at it and thought, oh, like, what does it mean to let them grow together? And the word let there is the word aphemi in Greek. And this word is used 147 times in, in the Greek, original languages. The most often translation in English is not let, it's forgive. In fact, on the cross, Christ says, aphemi them, for they know not what they do. It means forgive. Now, the context you have to weigh. I've said this to you before. When you have a language with, with 5,000, 6,000 words, as opposed to ours, which has millions, um, you have to have words that do double duty. They mean different things in the context. So when you read this context, it makes sense that you say, let them both grow together. You wouldn't say, forgive them both to grow together. And yet the word still carries that hint of forgiveness in it. And so when we look at this in that way and look at what Christ, the way Christ used it on the cross and he says, um, forgive them, what he is doing on the cross is he is absorbing the wrong, right? I've said this to you before. To forgive something means to absorb the wrong done, means absorbing a debt rather than exacting a debt. That's what forgiveness is. So if we take that subtle hint of what he's saying, let them grow together, that it means that our posture towards the weeds and towards the effects of sin in the world are somehow to be forgiving. That although Christ was pulling weeds very often, his overwhelming posture towards sin was forgiveness. And that needs to be ours as well. At least I think that's what he's getting at. And he bears injustice more than he exacts justice in his life. And so, as I said earlier, because I don't know if those weeds, some of us are weeds apparently in this church. That's what, that's what that seems to be saying. We don't know the difference, and I don't know the difference. But I don't know if you're a weed, and even if you are, how do I know you won't be wheat tomorrow? My job isn't to pull you out and say, get out of the church. My job is to love you as though you were wheat. Because who knows what Christ will do to turn you into wheat. And that's our job as well. As much as we want to smack our enemies... Our job is to love them and forgive them because we don't know if Christ is going to make them weep tomorrow through our work. And so we take this posture, and I think it's hinted at in that word right there. So if that's the case, if the world is made futile and, and life is made futile by sinful humans being involved in it, and we are asked to absorb it and to endure with the weeds until Christ returns, how can you do it? because it is very difficult. How can you possibly do this and absorb wrong? We're not very good at that. COVID has proven that. I'm sorry, but let me be very frank about one thing I've realized in COVID, in Calgary and in here. When the church's rights are offended, we are very quick to start an online campaign and picket and be outside the, church, outside the, the city hall. But where were we when senior citizens were dying of loneliness? and of disease in the early months. We are very quick to defend our rights, but not the rights of the downtrodden, the ones who are really suffering. And that, for me, stings me. I don't do well. We as a church have not, I'm sorry, we haven't historically done well with bearing the burdens of others. We immediately defend ourselves, but not the downtrodden. So if that's our history, how can we now answer this that says, no, your job is to live amongst this and forgive these people? How do we do that? How do we do it? 
I don't know. But here's, I think I do know. I think, the, well, I don't know. I think Christ knows. I think it's here in the parable. Have you noticed that even amidst our futility, skeptic, atheist, Hindu, Muslim, Christian, even amongst those times when we think my marriage is lost, my kids are lost, my work, I can't, be, I'm not ever going to be satisfied in these things. Have you ever noticed we keep trying even if you end up divorcing because you, you can't figure out how to make your marriage work, you always think the next spouse will be the right one, right? The next job will make me happy. Maybe, maybe I'll, I got it wrong. That's too, I won't say that. Maybe I get it wrong with one kid. I'll try with another. It's not really the way we do it. But, but there's, a sense of, there's a sense of that um, even though we feel that things are hopeless, we can't help but try for something better. It's like it's, uh, there's something at the tip of our tongue, just out of reach, but we still, we don't just chase it like a hamster on a wheel. We chase it because we deep down believe there is something better. It's not like these atheists will say, no, there's nothing better. You're just an idiot. No, we believe there is something better. There is a, a hope. There is a satisfaction for our longings. We can't help but, escape, but, but, but see that in all that we do. And then into this idea comes this parable where Christ spends so much time talking about the second coming. Because, you see, Life is not a merry-go-round. Life is building towards something. It's linear, not cyclical. It's moving towards something. And not just anything. It's building to a crescendo, to a culmination. And even more so, it's building to a resolution. Not just to some end. Not just to the sun going supernova, because that's an end. No, it's leading to some resolution of what we've experienced. And so when Christ shows up, he takes this, this parable and this image of the, the weeds again. And remember, the two weeds look very similar when they're young. But if you know anything about the, which I don't, I had to learn it. But when they grow up, they look very different. So in the early stages, they look very similar. But if you let them come to maturity, the wheat turns a golden brown. And it actually, probably a nice biblical language, it bows under the weight of the fruit, under the weight of the grain. So it starts to dip because of it. So when Christ comes and he sees the wheat bowing, it's interesting. The darnel, however, turns black and it stays straight up. So when they mature, it's easy to see what the difference is. Just yank them. Much easier. Christ is saying, when he comes back, I'll know the difference because they'll be mature. I will know it. You don't know, but I will know and so will those I bring with me to reap. And he will take those, the darnel, the weeds. He'll gather them up and he'll throw them into a place of fire and gnashing of teeth. People don't like the doctrine of hell today, but like it or not, it's real. And not just that, I like the language because it shows this, okay, like is a, a weird word. Um, I'm intrigued by the language because it says that the problem we've had all through life is we feel like life is just worthless, useless, it's just going on. And what is hell? Gnashing of teeth carries a sense of hopelessness, futility, spinning your wheels, running but never getting somewhere, right? And he says, what is hell? It's, it's an intensification and an extension of this futile life you've already experienced. It's just going to get worse and go on forever. That's what hell is. And then, here's where I think the hope comes. Because you and I, we not only crave justice, we want to see evil dealt with. That's right and good that we want justice. But it's not all we want. We want satisfaction. It's not enough to see evil penalized and, and punished. We want to see that all of the stuff we've been longing for we'll have a resolution that there is such a place where purity exists. There is such a place where I can be happy and pain-free and not get old and deal with getting old. I'm 45, I'm feeling old lately. Right? 
We want not just justice, we want resolution, satisfaction. And Christ offers these beautiful words there in the parable. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. When the, when the darkness of the weeds are yanked, the, 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 the wheat will be allowed to become what it was always meant to be. And it'll shine all the brighter. And I'll close with two references here. One from outside the Bible, one, and I'll close with the one in it. There's a, book, a short story by J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, and it's called Leaf by Niggle. And in this story, uh, Niggle is a guy who is an artist. He loves art. But he's in a culture that despises art, doesn't like it. And he, has, he decides to set his life to painting a picture of a tree. But not just a tree, but with a beautiful forest behind it. And he's meticulously doing each little leaf. He's painting it beautifully. But because life is life, he finds he doesn't have time to finish it. He never finishes his painting and he dies. And then in the next life, he is on a train. And as he's going through a landscape on this train, he sees up to the right side his tree. But it's real. It's in the field. So he stops the train, he gets off, and he runs up to the tree. And here's what he says. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he had imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and many that might have budded if only he had had time. And Tolkien is weaving Christian imagery in here. He's saying our work, he's using art as an example, but everything we long for and we've tried to build here, you've tried to build a family that honored God and were healthy and the kids never made mistakes and it doesn't work. When you've had um, a workplace and you've tried to build a workplace and do something really excellent for God's glory but you find weeds come in and sabotage it and you never quite build the law practice or the medical practice or the teaching the classroom or the, you never make the right cup of coffee, whatever it is. All of that futility, Tolkien is saying, in heaven... It because, all of the things you labor to create are there, but they're there as if there were no weeds, as if you could create it without any obstacles, that there is satisfaction for the longings that extends beyond. And just lest you think it's just a Tolkienism, Revelation 21:4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And in Revelation, we're going to preach the Revelation, you're going to see this. There's this idea that everything you've longed for is an echo. When Ecclesiastes said he has set eternity in the hearts of men, he's saying you've got this thing in you that craves eternity, craves perfection, but you can't do it. It's just out of reach here. The preaching is never good enough. I'm just, I'm not, just not, not quite good enough to tell you who Christ is. Never. Your family's never quite good enough. The seats are never comfortable enough. But one day they will be when the weeds are removed. And the reason you and I can experience that is entirely because of Christ. Because he comes and is treated like the Darnell. He is dragged out of the, out of the, the soil. And he is put on the cross. And remember on the cross he says, I thirst. 
That thirst is not just physical thirst. I may have said this at Easter. That's a thirst of him feeling that thirst you have to be rid of the cain, to be rid of the pain, to be rid of your, your whatever. Pick, a, pick an ailment and an illness or a problem we have. There's this longing we have that goes unsatisfied in this world. But because Christ cried out for satisfaction on the cross, for thirst, for a drink, and he went with no response, you can cry out and get this response that Tolkien points to in a little bit and Revelation points to in its reality. It's all because Christ went unsatisfied for you and I. There's no other way. You're going to be feeling the next wife, the next job, the next hobby, the next video game, whatever it is, will make you happy. It's not. Christ alone provides satisfaction for our thirst. Let's pray.